So why don't we why don't we go to the scriptures? Why don't we uh, dive in? Um, we we read uh, from Matthew chapter twenty one this morning um, about Jesus's arrival in Jerusalem, and um, I want to I want to take a few minutes and talk about uh, what's going on when Jesus uh, shows up in Jerusalem, and why. Uh, People say the things they say, because I think it's important that we understand not just what's being said, but why it's being said. Um, and of course, everybody knows uh, the the phrase, and I'm going to, you know, kind of have a little bit of interactive stuff. So if you know, if you know the answer, you can either throw it in the chat or you can unmute and just say it. Um, but what does what does the, the word Hosanna mean? Anyone? Does actually have a meaning. Save we pray. Save we pray, um, as Greg said. All right. It's actually it's actually two words in Hebrew. All right. Um, and uh, and it is it is save we pray or um, may it be make it true um, is a, is another way may uh, may we be saved make it true. Um, and when they, when the people say that in Matthew uh, 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, John 12, it's one of the few things that appears in all four of the Gospels. When they say that, um, they are not simply, it's not just a huzzah or yay. Um, this, is, this actually has significance to what's being done in Jerusalem at the time they say it. Uh, when we read the line, um, and I'm just going to read from Matthew, uh, the crowd that went before the crowd that went before him and that followed him were shouting, "Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." Um, well, <clears throat> the reason that they're shouting that um, is not just because Jesus showed up. It's not like Jesus showed up and everybody said, "Hey, what should we do? Let's all shout Hosanna!" Right? That, that is not what's happening. Um, during the, the Shalosh Regalim, the, the three pilgrimage festivals, so Judaism has three festivals that everybody is supposed to go to Jerusalem. The first is Pesach, Passover, then Shavuot, um, which is first fruits or Pentecost, and which those are spring festivals. And then there's a third one, Sukkot, Tabernacles, which is in the fall. During those three festivals, everybody's supposed to stop working and go to Jerusalem. They're supposed to gather there. And what they would do is routinely sing Psalms 113 through 118 together. They would sing them as these as worship songs. That's what they were. They're called, they're called the Egyptian Hallel. Uh, Hallel means praise. Uh, hallelujah means to praise the Lord. Um, and... Um, they were they were sung. That's what people did. So you can think of Psalm 113 through 118 as basically um, uh, the now this is music of the first century. Everybody knew these songs. They all sang them. They all gathered together. And um, when Jesus crosses, there, there's a um, uh, there's a if you look at Jerusalem, right? If this is the temple, there's a valley on the east of Jerusalem called the Kidron, and then on the other side of it is the Mount of Olives. And so in Matthew 21, when it says that Jesus crosses from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, 
At his time, there had been a bridge that had been built across. And the, the bridge led to the glorious gate or the eastern gate of Jerusalem. And the gate would be um, opened during these festivals so everybody could come into the temple. So they could all come to the temple platform and they would sing this song. So these songs. So Jesus shows up at the edge of the bridge right as they're getting to the end of Psalm 118. And he starts to walk across. And this is what's really interesting. Hosanna, all right, derives from the word for salvation in Hebrew, which if you called somebody by the name uh, Jehovah or the Lord saves, you would name him Yeshua, which is Jesus's name. So when they sing Hosanna, the people who are there know who he is and they know what they're saying and they're declaring Jesus to be the subject of Psalm 118. So they're singing this song and they're making a connection. Oh, this guy, this Jesus of Nazareth. Remember, Jesus has just um, raised Lazarus from the dead. So raising people from the dead was a sign of the Messiah. He is healing the blind. He's giving the blind their sight back, a sign of the Messiah. Um, he's being, uh, he's, he's fulfilling all of the expectations of the Messiah. And now he comes on Passover week. He arrives just as they're singing this song, Hosanna, uh, in the highest. So I wanted to take a few minutes and talk about Psalm 118. Because when the, Old, when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it is never just this one little piece. You're not supposed to just read that one little piece and go, oh, that's a nice little cute quote that they threw in. Rather, you have to find where that quote came from and go back. Because what they're doing is they're giving you a shorthand to go back and read the Old Testament, what, what the scriptures had to say. Uh, in fact, John... In his gospel, and I'm just going to read a quick line here so you know I'm not making this stuff up out of, out of thin air. John, in his gospel, in John chapter 12, um, when he describes this same infant entry, he says, verse 16, he says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, when they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So the disciples who write the Gospels, they, they're with Jesus when they start singing the Hosanna song. But to them, they don't see any significant significance to it. It's like, well, everybody, you know, we're singing and we cross the town. Hey, but afterwards, after Jesus is raised from the dead, after all the events that happen after this, then they remember and they go, oh... Oh, okay, okay, okay. Take a look at this psalm uh, and uh, just kind of go through it 
and uh, and as through it, I think you'll you'll start to see um, what's what's going on in this psalm. Um, so Psalm 18 begins this way: Oh, thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His chesed, His steadfast endures forever. That line opens and closes this psalm. It's called bookending. Um, and so back in the days when people bought paper books, I uh, know that that doesn't happen anymore, uh, but uh, you would have a bookshelf, you would have bookend, you would have weighted things on either side of the bookshelf to hold your place. Well, these, this line, this declaration, is the bookends of this psalm. So it tells us Psalm we're about to sing, and this would have been sung by this, the the kind of the choir director um, during this celebration. He would have heard with, "Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good," and everybody would have sung. They were singing, and they would have said, "His hesed in forever," or "His hesed is everlasting." Um, so this is this call to worship, though, serves a function in the psalm. So <clears throat> I want to picture this psalm a li- differently. Um, I'm sorry, my wife's camera's got my dogs running on it right now. It distracted me. It's right on the screen. <laughs> uh, but, uh, so this, this um, psalm is set in a very specific context. And I think you'll read this, see this as we read it. Read this psalm as if you, the, the person singing, the person leading the worship is the king and the city has been besieged by an enemy army. And he decided that what he needs to do is he needs to go out beyond the walls and fight the enemy. So he ends his song with, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Hesed, his steadfast love, uh, in forever. So this is the king. He says troops to get, to get, to get, to get, to get, to get battle. And he says, let's, let's pray where we go. Verses, verses, triplets. There's three triplets in this song. Let Israel say, His Hesed endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, Hesed endures forever. Let those who fear word say, His Hesed endures forever. So this is this this triple call to worship. Let's remember this as we get into this. Now look at verse five. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. So why start this song? Because we're in distress. And the Lord answered me and set me free. And now, now he's going to double line here. He's going to say, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. So now he's making a declaration. The Lord is with him. The, the Lord is on his side. Is really, uh, the Lord is with me, is what he's saying. Um, and so I won't be afraid. Why would you say, I will not be afraid? All right? Because there's lots of reasons to be afraid. You, you don't say, I will not be afraid, when completely there's no possibility of being afraid. You say it when you know the possibility of fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. That line, as my helper, is a very military line. Um, if you're if you're fighting with swords, shields, and spears and shields, um, then in any, one hand is holding a shield and the other hand is holding your weapon. Well, if you've got a shield in one hand and a weapon in your hand, um, your shield can only cover the part that the weapon's not involved in. So you can't you can't have through your shield. It doesn't work that way. So your helper next to you has to be the one who's shielding you while you're in the battle. And so he says, he says, the Lord helper, the Lord is going to help me this, and I will triumph. 
And then verse 8, I think is where we really see that they're coming out. They're getting ready to come out from behind the fortifalls of Jerusalem to take on the enemy. He says, It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in prison. So we could stay behind the walls. We could try to out the siege. But God is calling us to fight. And so we're going to... And then in verse 10, we see he goes beyond the walls. He gets into the fight. All nations surrounded me. Here's another triplet. Okay? It's actually a, a quatrain. It's, there's four lines. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me. Surrounded me and died. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me. They went out to go fight on the phone. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Off. Hard. So that I that I will in. The Lord heard so he ties back to that helper line. He ties back to this idea that he's in this battle, surrounded on every side. He says, "I'm cut now." Um, just for just for the language nerds out there, this is the same same verb that's used when the Hebrews talk about um, when the Hebrews talk about circumcising someone. This verb "cut off" is also the word verb that's translated as "circumcise." So it's kind of also kind of a a, a stab. Um, a, a cutting remark, pun intended, um, to the heathen, the uncircumcised that are fighting them. Um, um, he says, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, falling, but the Lord, he says, I, I, I just stumble. I, I, it seemed like we were overwhelmed. We were surrounded. There was no way to win. But then something happened and the Lord took us through. And then verse 14, we get the voice of the king, I think, as he realizes the battle has been turned and that victory is theirs. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. And here's another, another triplet. All right, this is the third triplet. The right hand of the hand of the Lord valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord Lord valiantly. And the right hand is the sword hand, sword hand this fighting hand. And so... He's saying, he's saying, look, the strength, all right? Um, yamin, the, the right hand, it's also the blessing hand. Um, it's also the cursing hand. The right hand serves a lot of purposes in, in their culture. And the right hand of the Lord has prevailed. And so he talks about now they're singing these songs of salvation. And at the end of the battle, verse 17, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. So the hero of the battle at the end has survived. He didn't think he was going to. He didn't know if he was going to make it through. He was afraid in verse 6. He was troubled, but he was determined he was going to be triumphant. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. I always picture him kind of doing it like this. I shall not die. I shall live. Like, like he, he's made it through. He's survived. They've gotten to the other side. So then... The, the triumphant army turns around and starts marking, marching back to Jerusalem. And the gates of the city have been closed because there was a siege. So the army rushes out through the gates. They quick close the gates behind them. They fight this overwhelming enemy. They manage to win. And the king marches back and he cries out to the gatekeeper, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. So he says, hey, we're back. Now it's time to open the gates. And the doorkeeper responds back. The people respond back. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. So we have this, this 
exchange where he says, open the gates. I've been proven righteous. I've been proven worthy. God has done this extraordinary thing. And they say, yes, the gate of the Lord is open and the righteous shall enter it. I thank you that you have answered me, verse 21, and have become my salvation. Again, this is the king singing. All right. So this isn't dealing with Jesus yet. This is just, we're just reading the psalm itself. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now the New Testament authors will take this line later and they'll apply it to Jesus. But if you really look at this in the context of what we're dealing with, here is a king who goes out to fight a battle, doesn't know whether he's going to survive, and now he comes back and he says, you know what? That enemy thought they could beat us. They thought they could stop us. They thought they could defeat us. But the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What everyone said was insignificant turned out to be important. And key line, verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And at this point, we hit the Hosanna line. Verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Now, in Hebrew, these these lines are exactly identical except for the verb save and success. So in Hebrew, it, it says something like this. It says, O Lord, save us. We pray, O Lord, succeed us, we pray. We don't really have a verb for that. There's no way, there's no transitive verb for this, for succeed, so it changes in English. But that's really the way that it's written. It's written as this declaration. And then they say, and this sounds familiar because it's what they say to Jesus later on, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. So they say, they they have this cry out, save us, O Lord, we pray. Save us, give us success. And now they can look and see the success. They can see the salvation. And so they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And from the house of the Lord, they cry out this. They, They sing it and they invite him to come to the temple and worship. And they say, the Lord is God. Then in verse 28, he says, you are my God. So here's the king in the courtyard of the temple now giving praise. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. And then we get the bookend. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So when we read Psalm 118, what we're reading is a psalm of victory unlikely victory the king returning home to worship his god after he has gone out into the world and defeated undefeatable enemies and now he returns and he calls people to worship now we don't know we don't know if this was actually about an actual siege or if it's simply being used as a setting for the song you know uh, you know i'm sure you're all aware that songs aren't always based on fact um, sometimes they're just using settings um, the, and uh, and so it definitely depicts very well this Iron Age kind of siege warfare and what you would do to break a siege. And if you were with us a few weeks ago, um, earlier in the year, we actually, Ahab actually broke a siege against Samaria in exactly this way. 
Um, he, he sent his troops going, riding out against overwhelming odds, and they managed to defeat them and return to the city. This is a pretty common thing. Um, but Jesus shows up at Jerusalem at the exact time that they're finishing up this song. And there are a couple things I want to point out um, I think are important here. We go all the way back to verse 2 of Psalm 118. It says, Let Israel say, His hesed endures forever. Well, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, what do the people do? They're, they're singing this song. As Jesus comes in, they're saying, yeah, this is, Jesus is, is uh, Yahweh's provision. He's God's provision. His steadfast love endures forever. God, man, God has not forgotten his people. And then we get this second line, let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. So Israel says, yes, his steadfast love endures forever. But if you read the narrative in the Gospels, you'll discover that the people who then set themselves against Jesus when he enters the temple as the victorious king, as the conquering king, when he comes in, the people who oppose him, the priests. Well, who is the priests? The house of Aaron. So when God calls the people to worship because of Jesus, they worship. But when he calls the priests to worship, they crucify him. And then the third one, let those who fear the Lord say, well, if Israel is in verse one, is the first one, priesthood is the second one, who are the people who fear the Lord? Well, that's everybody else. That's you and me. So isn't it good that this is not sequential, that it had to be Israel praise him, then the priests, and then the rest of us who fear the Lord get to praise him. But rather God calls us all to bring, bring praise to him regardless who joins us. Um, and then the second thing I want you to notice about this is that Jesus enters Jerusalem, and I've mentioned this before, but Jesus enters Jerusalem already victorious. And I want to, I know that that sounds a little weird because we tend to tell the story, we say, well, Jesus went to the cross and when he died and, and when he actually died, that's really when, you know, death was defeated and hell and salvation came in. And that's not incorrect, but it's not the whole story. It's not the one thing that Jesus did, but the whole thing who Jesus is. And it's not just that he died, it's that he lived and then died. It, it's that who he is matters. It's not just death, it's not just blood, it's not just the cross, but it's Jesus himself on the cross shedding his blood and dying. The victorious one laying himself down. Jesus is not defeated at the cross. It's simply the moment that we can look at and see the triumph of Sunday, we can look at it a couple of different ways. We can look at, at it as kind of the, oh, this was a great celebration, but then Jesus was going to die, and isn't that so sad? Um, which is often the way that it's 
told. I mean, even the, the, the I mean, what do they do on, on Ash Wednesday in liturgical churches? They burn the palms from the previous Palm Sunday. That's where they get the ashes that they put on people's heads. It's this idea of, well, you know, Palm Sunday is really kind of the beginning of the end. It's kind of the downward spiral to death. But it isn't. It's the victorious king already conquering, going to the temple to make the sacrifice that was necessary, but doing so as a, as a triumphant king, not as a defeated king. And when we, when we live our lives, we get to choose how we will view our life in Christ. We can either view our life of Christ, in Christ as kind of just a long defeat of the sinner. So it's like, you know, people are always, oh, I'm, it's just because I'm a sinner. It's just because I'm just so, I, I, oh, I just, you know, it's, and they, they beat themselves up over and over and over again. We can choose to live in defeat or we can choose to live in the victory and triumph of Christ. Even going to the cross, he has already declared as triumphant. The, 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 the psalm that they're singing. And the disciples didn't understand it. They didn't get it until afterwards. They went, oh, Jesus wasn't going to cross to lose. Jesus was going to the cross to win. And, and, and he was, we, we were looking at this and going, you know, what's going on? And Jesus was already persevering. He was already pushing through the darkness of our world, the darkness of death and pain and all of those things to bring new hope to us um, as his followers, as those who fear the Lord. And so I think when we, we take what's going on in the Gospels and we kind of go back and we expand what's actually occurring um, in the text that's being quoted, it magnifies everything um, about who Jesus is. And it gives us a different perspective because Jesus' offering on the cross was the expression of God's hesed his steadfast love, his eternal loving kindness. In a single moment of humanity's existence, God's loving kindness was completely and utterly revealed to us. And, and all of the other questions that we might have, all of the philosophical questions we might have, are, we need to talk about them and we need to discuss them, we need to dive into them, we need to ask the hard questions but as Christians, we can come to this moment when God's loving kindness was revealed in Jesus as triumphant, as victorious, as unstoppable, as the conquering king. And we can build our hope and our faith and our life out from there.